0: Chapter 3, The Promise, in which Abraham shows us how the words loyalty and commitment clarify what it means to love God. Genesis 12, chapter 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Key lesson, Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means being loyal and committed to Him, even if that means making an altar to God in the land of Baal, even if it costs you. Miss Heard On my first day of kindergarten, and I remember this as if it happened nearly four decades ago, right after morning announcements, Mr. Montague came over the PA system and told us it was time for us to stand up and say the pledge. I had no idea what this was. That was the first time I heard the Pledge of Allegiance. And I would go on to say this pledge every single morning for the next seven years. I don't know why they made us say it every morning. Were they afraid of waning commitment of elementary school students to the American way of life? To be fair, this was the end of the Cold War, which was an intense time in our nation's history. But still, every single day, If we skip a day, Glenda, it's tetherball on Wednesday and bam, communism on Thursday. As Mr. Montague led us in the pledge, my classmates and I repeated the words after him verbatim. There was just one small problem. I didn't know what words we were supposed to be saying. So I might have misheard some of the words. This happened to me all the time as a kid. Listen, all you Gen Zers and millennials, I did not have the internet in my pocket. I could not simply look things up. I had to go with phonetical approximation. For example, later on when I heard Michael Jackson's classic song, Man in the Mirror, I thought he was singing and no mustache could have been any clearer. This, one, literally makes no sense and two, is absolutely not what he was singing. Or later, when I heard John Bon Jovi's rock anthem Livin' on a Prayer, I thought the lyrics were it doesn't make a difference if we're naked or not, which is one, not true, legally speaking, and two, again, not what he said. This happens to everyone. When my son was about five, I obviously introduced him and his sister to classic 90s music, and the first time he heard c and Music Factory, he told me he thought the famous opening line was, everybody's dead now. This, admittedly, makes it a much, much darker song. At any rate, at the risk of having you, dear listener, lose all respect for me, I will now tell you what I thought Mr. Montague and all the teachers wanted us to say each day. I thought the Pledge of Allegiance was, I led the pigeons to the flag of the United States of America. The first time I saw the actual words of the actual Pledge of Allegiance printed out, I was like, oh, it suddenly made so much more sense. The actual pledge, I learned, contains no imperatives to lead any birds anywhere. I learned so much in college. I pledge allegiance. Although the pledge of allegiance was an ubiquitous and ever-present part of my elementary school life, the actual word allegiance is really rare. It's a word we don't use much, but it's a word I think can help get us a great deal closer to understanding the story of Abraham. First, let's get a proper definition. Allegiance. Noun loyalty or commitment of a subordinate to a superior or of an individual to a group or a cause. So our working dictionary definition is that loyalty plus commitment equals allegiance. As we'll see in this story, Abraham moves from being either vaguely untethered religiously or perhaps devoted to other Mesopotamian gods to being deeply committed and deeply loyal to God. And the story shows us that this deep commitment and loyalty is a key marker of what it means to love God, or love anyone, really. But first, let's see the pattern from the story. Here's how things go. Phase 1, Genesis 12, 1-7. As we discussed in the previous chapter, the call of Abraham is a key moment in Abraham's life. God appears to Abraham telling him to leave his family in Haran, and God promises that he will make Abraham into a great nation, that his name will also be great, and that somehow all the nations and families of the earth will be blessed by him. Abraham does what God says, goes to Canaan where they worship Baal, and Abraham's response is to build an altar to the Lord. Genesis twelve seven. the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Phase 2, Genesis 12, Abraham's in the land of Canaan and finds a nice spot in the hills. Abraham then builds another altar to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. Genesis twelve eight. from there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Phase three, Genesis thirteen three to four. Unfortunately, there's a famine in the land and Abraham promptly goes into Egypt, where the Nile River would have likely made food security better. Things don't go well there. More on that later. And after a few brushes with death, Abraham gets kicked out of Egypt. He repents and goes back to Canaan, right back to that altar he'd built. There, Abraham calls on the name of the Lord again. Genesis 13, three. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There, Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Phase 4, Genesis 13, God shows up again. There's a small conflict with Abraham's nephew, Lot, where their herds are so large that the land can't support them, and bickering breaks out between the herders. Abraham, wanting peace, agrees to give part of the land to Lot who after that terrible experience of famine in Canaan chooses the lush green plain. Abraham takes his family tribe and animals and God appears to him, this time telling him, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Come on, tell me you don't hear Mufasa saying to Simba, everything the light touches is yours. Abraham's response is to build an altar to the Lord. Genesis 13, 18. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. So what's going on here? There is a lot of altar building and a lot of calling on the name of the Lord. What's up with that? Abraham is changing in some radical ways. The four phases I just mentioned when Abraham is building altars and calling on the name of the Lord are outer signs that something inside him is changing. Abraham's deepest commitments and loyalties are shifting. This is a good part of what it means to love God. Your commitments and loyalty shift. In fact, it's one of the things that Abraham is celebrated and remembered for throughout the rest of the Bible by other writers of Scripture. You gotta have faith, faith, faith. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul refers to Abraham multiple times as the father of the faith. In fact, in one section in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, Paul uses the word faith four times regarding Abraham. Listen to these verses, Galatians 3, 7-9. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Clearly, Paul holds Abraham's faith in high regard. And the faith of Abraham is something we should try to emulate. It's part of Abraham's spiritual lineage and a source of blessing. It's clearly important. But I'm going to be honest here. I don't know what it means. And I don't think the English language helps us much here. The English language doesn't have a verb form of the word faith. So we have to use a different word like believe or add a verb, have faith. It really is confusing and muddy. Sometimes faith is used as a verb, as in, I have faith in God, which is usually meant to suggest that a person believes in something, or sometimes very strongly. But people also use faith as a noun, as when they're talking about their particular religious beliefs, as in, my Catholic faith guides me. In other times, it's used as the object of a prepositional phrase, like when people say, are you a person of faith? It doesn't help that our modern usage of the word faith is even more muddied. For a long time, I thought the word faith meant trying really hard to believe something you know probably wasn't true. The most manic example of that I have is the 2007-2008 Golden State Warriors, who were termed the We Believe Warriors. The team caught fire at the end of the regular season, winning 16 of their final 21 games. They clinched the eighth and final spot in the West on the last day of the regular season, and this never-back-down, tough-as-nails, Oakland-strong team defeated the number one overall seed in the playoffs, the Dallas Mavericks, in a stunning upset. My friends started talking crazy talk saying, we can go all the way, man. And I was like, uh, no, that's not how the NBA works. The We Believe Warriors lost in the very next round of the playoffs, 4-1, because um, they weren't very good. In this way, the word faith means the opposite of reason and the examination of evidence. You believe something in spite of the evidence. I believe the warriors will win. They're not going to, you stupid head. Is that what faith is? Believing something improbable against all evidence and all odds? Another connotation of the word faith is to, quote, believe something to be true. In religious circles, this is often how the word faith is used, like I have faith in Jesus. And that means something very similar to, I believe that Jesus is actually God. What's fascinating is that in that definition is that faith is nearly always juxtaposed and contrasted to works or doing something. It's only about believing, a mental assent to a series of truths. Paul writes that the righteous will live by faith, which I was told meant that when you die, if you believe the right things, then you will be accepted by God. He has a scanner like at a grocery checkout aisle and he scans your brain for a particular set of beliefs. The right answer, and if you believe it, then you're all good. But Bible translators tell us that the English word faith is a cognitive word used to translate a Hebrew word aman and the Greek word pistis. The trouble is that these are words whose semantic range is larger and more expansive than merely mental assent. The Hebrew word aman, for example, used in Genesis 15.6, is translated as believed, is used to describe as driving a tent stake into firm ground, but it also means to fully put one's trust in something. This word is used roughly 110 times in the Old Testament, and in a sense, Abraham has driven the stake of his life into the ground of God, knowing it will hold. This is trust and loyalty to God. And we see that this act of trust and loyalty is affirmed by God as good and right and pleasing. God is pleased. This is also challenging because even English words shift over meaning over time. As the comparative religion scholar Wilfred Cantwell Smith pointed out, when the King James Bible was printed in 1611, to believe meant something very different than it does now. It meant something like, to hold dear. Smith, who died in 2000, once wrote this, which I think gets to the heart of it. Here's what he wrote. Quote, the affirmation I believe in God used to mean, quote, given the reality of God as a fact of the universe, I hereby pledge to him my heart and soul. I committedly opt to live in loyalty to him. I offer my life to be judged by him, trusting in his mercy. Today, the statement, I believe in God, may be taken by some as meaning, given the uncertainty as to whether there is a God or not as a fact of modern life, I announce that my opinion is yes, End quote. That's a big difference. Words change and shift over time. And it seems to me that both the Apostle Paul and the implications of the story of Abraham in Genesis are much closer to that first meaning. As I learned every single time I had a crush on a girl in high school, there is a world of difference between acknowledging someone's existence and being loyally committed to them in a relationship. For Smith, the word faith has the implication of not only trust, but also loyalty to God. So with all that in mind, let's go back to Galatians 3 and take Paul's words about Abraham and do a little bit of linguistic expansion. Again, because of the much larger semantic range of these translated words. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Understand then that those who have trust and loyalty in God are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by trust and loyalty and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on their trust and loyalty are blessed along with Abraham the man of trust and loyalty to God alone. Understanding that the word faith means both trust and loyalty allows Abraham's actions, building altars and calling on the name of the Lord, to make far more sense. Again, these are exterior markers of something that's going on inside of Abraham. His loyalties and commitments are shifting. Abraham is shifting, and these altars are proof. Big Idea 1 Abraham built an altar to show that his life had been altered. (laughs) See See what I did there? The word altar is used 389 times in the Old Testament, and the word offering, which is almost always what goes on in altar, is used 689 times, making it one of the 20 most used words in the entire Bible. Altars were common in Abraham's world and were widely used in the ancient Middle East. Archaeologists have found many Canaanite altars, both smaller ones with small field stones, and later larger ones built with brick, of course, and they've been excavated dating back to not only the time of Abraham, but also many centuries before. But the function of the altar shows us something. Altars commemorate sacred moments and sacred places. Altars were often frequently built in the ancient world to signify a sacred space. According to archaeology, all temples in the ancient world had altars, although not altars were built in temples. Linking altars to the worship of gods. Sometimes these sacred places are called, quote, thin places, unquote, or a high place to designate that the line between heaven and earth is pretty thin. In the last chapter, we heard about the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, where Abraham has an encounter that's more than thin. Heaven and earth aren't pretty close, they overlap. The spiritual realm, what the Bible often refers to as the unseen realm, breaks through into Abraham's reality like the Kool-Aid man through a living room wall. Just imagine this interruption. This is average Abraham going about his average Mesopotamian daily business, and suddenly he is visited and talked to by a supernatural deity. This is not something that happens every day. Abraham follows this God's detailed instructions, and then Abraham has another encounter with this God. Genesis 12.6. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Mora at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Sometimes an encounter like this in the Bible is called a theophany, which means an appearance of God or a visible manifestation of God to humans. And the Hebrew language is helpful here to make sense of this. If you'll notice, I read the word appeared twice. The first word appear in the Hebrew is the word yara'ah, which means to reveal. The second word appear is the Hebrew word "nirah," or to appear or to be visible or to seen. In this encounter in Genesis 12, something is revealed to Abraham that he did not know before. Something about the future. Something about his future. Something about ultimate reality. In this encounter in Genesis 12, something is made visible to Abraham too. The unseen realm burst forth. The world of God space, invading Abraham's average dusty Sumerian life. A mind-bending, destiny-shaping encounter that would forever change the trajectory of Abraham's life. There's also some wordplay going on here, which, unless you speak Hebrew fluently, which I do not, you're likely to miss. The place where this event happens to Abraham is called the Great Tree at Morah, and Morah is a word that is phonetically similar to the Hebrew word Mara, which means vision. So at the Grove of Trees of Vision, Abraham sees something that was invisible to him before, and God is revealed to him. This is a sacred place where God encountered Abraham, and his instinct is to memorialize this place. Another word that some Bible scholars use for these type of encounters is the word apocalypse. Now, an apocalypse might sound like it has to do with the end of the world or fiery destruction or like the terrible film 2012 starring John Cusack, but it's not that. An apocalypse is when somebody sees something or God reveals something important to someone. It's a vision of something transcendent in which God tells a person something about ultimate reality. In an apocalypse, God chooses someone, a special representative, to learn about God and God's ultimate purposes so that that person can serve basically as a vehicle of divine wisdom. In fact, the final book of the Bible, which we call Revelation, is the Greek word apocalypse, where we get the word apocalypse. At any rate, this is what is happening to Abraham. And it might seem like a once in millennia experience for humanity, but I don't think it is. I think God breaks through more often than you'd think. And these moments can truly change us and shift something inside us forever. Oahu night diving in the Milky Way. Right after college, I lived in Hawaii for a while on the island of Oahu. One night, a group of my friends decided that they wanted to go night diving off the North Shore to look for ula ula, which is the Hawaiian word for lobster. I thought this was an absolutely terrible idea. First of all, being from Ohio, I did not have a lot of ocean night diving experience. Secondly, I have a super active imagination. So the idea of hanging out in a reef at night with the dark abyss of the ocean extending just beyond us was definitely gonna freak me out. And third, I had just watched a very frightening nature documentary featuring sharks called Finding Nemo and I didn't really wanna die. But my friends convinced me to come. So we drove to the North Shore, parked at a beachfront hotel, and then walked about a mile and a half carrying our gear along Kaiholulu Beach until we came to a cove with the reef. That was not a fun hike. First of all, the gear was very heavy. Secondly, we were slogging through sand. Third, it was a new moon and the whole beach was completely pitch black. And fourth, I was fairly certain I was marching to my death. We were far away from the dim lights of the resort. If there was an emergency, how would we get help? I had this funny thing I do, this quirk. When I think I'm about to die, I chatter nervously. It's just a little thing I do. So as we huffed along the beach, I kept peppering my boys, Manua, Jason, and Owen nonstop with questions about night diving. Hey, uh, guys, have either of you ever seen a shark while night diving? Has anyone you know ever seen a shark while night diving? Has anyone you know ever died while night diving? Is Ula Ula really worth this kind of risk? Aren't Ula Ula basically giant marine cockroaches? Aren't Ula Ula basically mermaids for scorpions? Here we are, my friend Owen said from the front of the pack, clearly ignoring my completely legitimate line of questioning. We all gratefully dropped our diving gear that we held in our mesh dive bags onto the beach. It was pitch black, and the sound of crashing waves reverberated into the night wind, and that's when it happened. Whoa, my friend Jason said. Wait, what, 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 what? I said nervously. Jason pointed up. And above us, in the Hawaiian sky in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, miles away from any light pollution on the night of a new moon, I looked up and saw more stars than I have ever seen in my entire life. These were not simple pinpricks of light through the domed black canopy of the night sky. No. The deep, dark purple velvet of the night sky revealed the dimensions of nebulous clouds from the Milky Way, enormous mists of stars and light extending above us in their vastness. It wasn't stars we were seeing. It was galaxies. And we all sat down, and not because we were tired. We looked up, In silence, and sat there for minutes, overwhelmed, just completely overwhelmed. Whoa, brah, my friend Manua finally uttered out loud to no one in particular. And I assure you, for as long as I am alive, I will remember that exact moment on that exact beach on the north shore of Oahu. It was a moment of deep connection with God for me. Something like Overwhelming awe, but it was simultaneous awe that all of us, this band of friends, had together all at once. And in our silence together, we we worshipped, astonished at God's vastness and his closeness at the same moment. The old Irish Celtics had an expression for moments in places like this. They called them thin places. Places where the distance between heaven and earth seems to collapse. And we get a glimpse or catch a feeling of something transcendent. Something big, something other, something divine. Heaven and earth are only three feet apart, the Celts used to say. But in these thin places, that distance shrinks. Sometimes it even disappears. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever experienced this? Places that, as you think about it, seemed sacred, different than the rest of the common ordinary world, imbued with something other, maybe even God himself. The DMV is not a thin place. Neither is Las Vegas. But thin places are not always at the top of mountains or scenic views. Sometimes, even common places can be thin. Sacred Places in Common Places In 2002, my girlfriend, and by girlfriend I mean Nicole Cosma, who would later become my fiancé and later my wife, because, to paraphrase the words of the great American poet Beyoncé, if you like it then you should put a ring on it, she and I went on a triple-double date for Valentine's Day to a fancy Japanese steakhouse. This made total sense because my girlfriend was a vegetarian. We went with my buddy Ryan and his date, and our friends Daniel and Leste, who had just gotten married. I don't remember much about the meal, except for this one moment when the chef flipped a shrimp into someone's mouth at the table, and then that person suddenly realized, oh, I have a severe shellfish allergy, and so she spat it right back out onto the grill. Oh, man, the look that the chef gave her. I still laugh when I think about it. Three years later, my wife and I were again with Daniel in Liste. Only this time, it was at a hospital. Daniel had been diagnosed with aggressive, inoperable terminal brain cancer. Our entire young adults group at church prayed for months for the cancer to recede for a miracle. The miracle never came. We visited Daniel in an antiseptic hospital room with blue and white tiled floor and buzzing and blinking machines. His wife of only a few years sat nearby. How are you doing? I asked. It was a stupid, stupid question. And for a second, I thought the sadness would break all of us. But Daniel laid in his bed, thin, his head shaved, his face beaming. God is so good, he said. And then he began to describe all the ways God loved him and served him and helped him in the previous week, in the previous month, in the previous year. I was speechless. That reminds me of a song, Nicole said. Do you remember it? How great. Is our God, she sang weakly through her tears. And Daniel, who loved music, closed his eyes and sang that familiar chorus, his frail, dying body somehow brimming with joy and life. I will remember that moment forever, too. That simple hospital room was a thin place, a sacred place where heaven and earth seemed closer than ever. Death, they told us, was coming, but in that moment, All I saw and knew and felt was life. We buried Daniel three weeks later. And at his funeral service, a packed room of his friends and family sang some of his favorite songs about God. And in true Daniel style, he had recorded a video of himself singing some worship songs so he could join in with us, leading worship at his own funeral. Incredible. In a very human way, By building this altar of crude stones, Abraham is saying something like, I won't forget this moment because it changed me. Abraham could never forget the moment God broke through time and space to talk to him. In one way, an altar is a monument saying, this is a thin place. It's a way of commemorating that something incredible happened here that makes this place sacred, a place where God's space, heaven, interacted with human space, earth. Big idea too, Abraham built an altar to show his particular allegiance to his God. The primary word for altar in the Hebrew Bible is Mizbeach, which is derived from the root word of the word in Hebrew for to slaughter. Why slaughter? Because it was on an altar that one made a sacrifice, which was almost always an animal. Altars were about the worship of a deity, and worship always involves giving the deity some sort of sacrifice, something valuable. This is not something unique to Abraham. We see sacrifice in the Bible all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, and undoubtedly, Abraham's culture would have had lots of altars and lots of sacrifices. The offering of sacrifice answered the universal human need to present an offering to the deity as a gift and as a show of humility, submission, or even offering of repentance to gain forgiveness. The very first time we see the word altar in the Bible is a few chapters earlier, after the flood rotters receded and Noah's Ark comes to rest on the top of Mount Ararat. One of the first things Noah does is build an altar and sacrifice some of the animals. This offering on Noah's altar was not only a symbol of a theophany, that moment when God told Noah about the future and directed him to build an ark. In this case, it also seems to be an offering of thanksgiving and devotion. But if you think about it, Noah's act of devotion was in itself a response to God, appearing to him and helping him and his family survive the flood. God had already shown devotion to Noah and his family and the giraffes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Noah was just responding. As we've seen from the story, multiple times Abraham makes altars to God, never to foreign gods, and calls upon the name of the Lord. This phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord, is developed through the rest of the Old Testament. But Abraham does it multiple times here in Genesis. The phrase sometimes means a call for deliverance, but it's also a phrase that means to worship. It's a proclamation and an announcement that in this moment, Abraham is not calling on the name of Baal, or Moloch or Sina, or another god. But Abraham is calling on the name of this god, Yahweh, who so graciously appeared to him. These altars are Abraham saying, of all the gods, O God, you are my God. It's an expression of loyalty. And as we've seen, this loyalty and commitment to God, above all other gods, is upheld later in the Bible by Paul and by other writers of scripture. But again, if we follow the story, just like Noah, Abraham's altar building is usually a response to something God does or something God says or something God promises. Abraham builds altars, makes offerings, proclaims, and calls out the name of God, not any other God, but God, as signs of his loyalty and devotion. And like Noah, Abraham is doing this as a response because God is always showing up first and showing his devotion to Abraham first. And nowhere is this more clear than in Genesis 15, a story with not one but two altars, and a story that's about allegiances, but also has a gigantic plot twist. The non-human torch. In Genesis 15, it's been a few years since God first showed up in that apocalypse to reveal himself and Abraham and the world's future. God has promised that Abraham will become a great nation, but Sarah is still barren and still there is no child. Abraham is getting worried. So God shows up in another theophany, another vision, and God makes another staggering promise. I'm losing track how many times this happens to Abraham. Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, for I am your shield, your very great reward. God's words to not be afraid reveal that Abraham is probably very much afraid. Not only is there a cosmic promise to bring blessing into the entire world, but there's a deeply personal promise to Abraham too, a son. Abraham is grateful, but reminds God ever so gently that, um... I don't have a son yet. And that the person set to inherit his stuff is one of his servants. God clarifies his promise again, assuring Abraham that he's not tricking him and that a son from his own body or his own flesh will come. God then has Abraham go outside and look up at the stars. Genesis 15:5. He took him outside and said, "Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them." telling him his future descendants will be that numerous. I find it interesting that now, whether Abraham looks down at the dust or up at the stars, there is a reminder of these bold promises from God. And by this point, despite all this taking longer and sounding more far-fetched than a timeshare presentation, Abraham is resolute. He trusts and believes this God. But then he respectfully asks, how will I know? How will I know all this will come to pass? And now we come to another part of the story where Abraham builds some altars. Not just one, but two. But to understand the importance of this moment, we need a little bit of history. A little bit more. Once more into the fray. Welcome to tonight's episode of Chopped. In the last hundred years or so, throughout the modern Middle East, corresponding to the ancient Near East at the time of Abraham, archaeologists have found all these tablets of stone which once translated, turned out to be contracts. These are pacts and formal agreements between the people of ancient Mesopotamia and Verizon Wireless. I'm kidding. They were between tribes and people groups. Sometimes these contracts were between two parties who were more or less equal. Scholars call these contracts parity agreements, and the language in these is more informal and equal. Often the parties would call each other brother. The terms of the contract were basically agreements on sharing resources. But there was another type of contract that scholars and archeologists have found called a suzerain treaty. The word suzerain means Lord or ruler. And these were between two parties where one was dramatically more powerful or wealthy. In those contracts, the language was more formal. The parties were referred to as Lord and Son to indicate the power gap. The terms of the contract were much more stark one person or group pledged loyalty to the suzerain as a vassal, basically a slave, in exchange for protection and provision. Keep in mind, the less powerful party had to swear exclusive allegiance to the ruler or lord. A vassal cannot have two rulers or two lords. Just like an NBA player can't have two teams, it doesn't make any sense. You swore exclusive allegiance to one ruler or one lord. Then, to seal this treaty, The weaker party, who had the most obligations as the vassal, would go on what's called a covenant walk. There would be two altars built, and then an animal would be killed, and the parts of that animal and the blood from that animal would be placed on each altar. Then the vassal, the servant, would walk between the two altars to seal the covenant with the more powerful party. Forget signing a document with a pen. Apparently, the act of dividing the animals and walking through the parts was an ancient form of contractual agreement. It was a way of saying, if I break my covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. This was a very strong form of a loyalty oath. And with that information in mind, let's take a look at what's going on in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 9 says, so the Lord said to him, Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So you see what's going on, right? This is a covenant walk. God and Abraham are going to seal the deal. So before we go any further, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. What kind of treaty or covenant is this? Is this a parity agreement between two equal parties, or is it a suzerain treaty between a powerful lord and a servant vassal? I'll give you a second to lock in your answer. Okay, that's right. It's obviously a suzerain treaty because nobody is an equal partner with God, nobody. Not Tom Brady, not Tom Cruise, not even Oprah. This is a suzerain treaty. So who's gonna be walking through the two altars? Well, it'd be the weaker party to show his allegiance, his ultimate allegiance to God. And that's where the story is headed. Abraham's gonna show his allegiance to God through another altar. He's going to be under the covenant curses too if he breaks his promise. But then these vultures show up and there's Abraham without a shotgun and he has to shoo the birds of prey away. And this is difficult work and he gets tired and he falls asleep before he can even go on the covenant walk. And then something incredible happens in the story. Let me read it. Genesis 15, 12, and then I'll skip forward to Genesis 15, 17. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Listen to that last part. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two pieces. Who is going on the covenant walk in this story? Who is promising death if he breaks his promises and oaths? Well, it should be Abraham. But who is it? Well, it's a floating torch. Who's going on the covenant walk? It's not Abraham. Astonishingly, it's God himself. God is the one making the promises. God is communicating to Abraham that he, as God, as ruler, as the more powerful party, He himself will bear the penalty if he breaks his promises. God is swearing unto death that he will be devoted to Abraham and will keep his promises to bless him. Now, that for sure would have shocked and surprised Abraham. Nobody in the ancient world would have expected those kinds of promises from the more powerful party. But what happened next must have simply astonished Abraham. Because the ceremony ended. It ended. Abraham was never required or asked by God to go on the covenant walk. Abraham didn't have to go on the walk, he didn't have to promise anything. This was unheard of for the servant or the vassal not to have to make the formal pledge of loyalty and allegiance. It was unheard of for the vassal not to put himself under the curse of the covenant if he broke his pledge. Author and Pastor Tim Keller, reflecting on the story in Genesis 15, wrote this. Quote, Abraham knew what it meant, though he didn't see how it could be. It meant God was making the promise for the both of them, and that he was taking the curse of the covenant on for both of them. And what he was doing was he was saying, Not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my promise, I'll be torn to pieces if you God knew that Abraham, like all of us, was going to make some mistakes along the way. There'd be times when Abraham would make the wrong turn or make a boneheaded decision. And in this moment, Abraham heard a promise he'd never even considered was possible. A God was making a solemn oath of allegiance to a human upon penalty of death. What? Now you see why Abraham was willing to give his total allegiance to God. Because God had given it to Abraham already. This is what love is. This is love. This kind of reciprocity, this give and take, that's the way love works. Abraham is doing this not because he's being bribed or bought, but because it's the way love works. We've all seen something similar to this. I know I have. Accidental love. On the day of our one-year anniversary, Nicole and I got a call from our friend Sager, telling us that our friend Ryan, from the Japanese steakhouse story I mentioned earlier, had been in a terrible motorcycle accident on the way to work that morning. As our group of friends rushed to get information and get to the hospital, a dread sank in over us. The doctors are saying it's bad, Sager told us, like, really bad. We drove to Stanford Hospital, got out of the car, and hurried to the lobby where we saw our friends huddled together. What's going on, I asked. They're operating on him right now, Sager said. We'll know in a bit when Michelle comes out. Michelle, I said. Yeah, Sager said. She's been in there with the doctors this whole time. This surprised me a bit. Michelle was Ryan's kind of new girlfriend. They had met about seven months earlier at his New Year's Eve party and started dating shortly after that. Now, I had been friends with Ryan for a while and I watched him go through a litany of girlfriends. These relationships always seemed to flame out pretty quickly. I guess I figured it'd be the same with Michelle. Michelle was great. I mean, don't get me wrong, but after all, this was, this was Ryan. A few minutes later, Michelle walked out to where we were. I don't know how Michelle got to the hospital so quickly, but she was Information Grand Central Station. She was running the show. Michelle gave the hospital Ryan's information so they could access his medical record. She contacted Ryan's parents, who were about to board a cruise ship in Long Beach. She helped them get off the boat and book a flight home a few hours later. She called Ryan's sister, who was in grad school at SoCal, and promptly hopped in her car. She talked with the doctors, getting the latest info and passing that all along to all of us. She set up a prayer chain for all of Ryan's friends. She set up an information chain to pass along updates. She even coordinated with roadside assistants to figure out what to do with Ryan's mangled motorcycle. And when the doctors made the difficult decision that they had to amputate Ryan's leg just below the knee, she was the first person they told. In short, Michelle snapped into code red, like a full Monsters, Inc. level 2319, turning chaos into order, forming information chains, and taking care of nearly everyone and everything. The doctors were not able to save Ryan's leg, but they were able to save his life on that operating table, thanks in large part to a trauma surgeon and an emergency room nurse that just so happened to be driving behind Ryan at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning on an otherwise empty highway. They saved his life, and that night, Michelle emerged into the lobby where we waited. Well, he's awake, Michelle said, and making dumb Ryan jokes. We all laughed and we sighed. Although a painful and long and life-altering recovery was ahead for our good friend, he was not dead. He'd be different, but he would be okay. And as the night wound down, we left the hospital and we walked to our car. I remember turning to my wife and Sager and saying, man, Michelle is something. I could not have been more impressed. She wasn't acting like his girlfriend, I said out loud to no one. She was acting more like, I tailed off. Nicole looked at me, she knew what I was thinking. Yep, she said. Yep, Sager said. Two years later, I was in a black suit in front of a room full of people. Ryan was standing next to me in a tux as Michelle walked down the aisle in a gorgeous white gown. It was the first wedding I ever officiated. And I think I did it okay because it stuck, 15 years and counting. At the risk of sounding completely heretical, I wonder if that experience wasn't somewhat analogous in a small, small, minute way to what Abraham experienced. Think about it. During that traumatic event, Ryan had a bit of an apocalypse about this girl he was dating. Something was revealed to him, and the hidden and unseen became clear as the sky itself. He got to see Michelle for who she really was, her true character, her true self. That's what love needs. You can't love someone you don't know anything about. And during that traumatic event, Ryan had seen something Michelle's devotion to him. She was not acting like just another girlfriend. She was acting like, well, a wife. We all saw it that day. That's also a part of love. Someone does something that shows they truly care about you and you respond back. It's just the way it works. Michelle had shown incredible devotion to Ryan, to his friends, to his family that day, And in some ways, when Ryan proposed, he was just responding to the love and devotion Michelle had clearly already shown him. After that accident, I'm telling you, Ryan was done for. There's no going back. There were no other girls out there in the entire world. Ryan's allegiances shifted entirely. Michelle was it forever. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Final thoughts. In the final analysis, as we'll see, Abraham makes quite a few missteps and mistakes. Some of them are absolutely tragic. But when it comes to this issue, the issue of loyalty and commitment to God, Abraham doesn't mess that one up. Abraham never makes an altar to any other God. He never calls on the name of any other God. In this one area, Abraham shows a beautiful example. Remember, key lesson one, loving God means being loyal and committed to him. Abraham pledges his allegiance to God because, after all, what kind of God does this? Makes these kind of promises. Is it any wonder that Abraham was willing to give his ultimate allegiance to this God? Again, the words of author and pastor Tim Keller, who wrote, O Abraham, Abraham, God is saying, and to all of us, O world. I will bless you no matter what, even if it means that my immortality must become mortal, even if my glory must be drowned in darkness, even if I have to literally be torn to pieces. This is what God's like. Abraham, the story tells us, believed God. He had faith in God. And in a way, this part of the story of Abraham asks the same question of all of us will we do the same? Of course, this doesn't answer the practical question of what does loyalty, commitment, allegiance to God actually look like in the real world? We'll explore what Abraham shows us about the answer to that critical question in the next chapter. But for now, let's just rehash the key lesson. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means being loyal and committed to him, even if it means making an altar to God in the land of Baal, even if it costs you.